Happy New Year, Dr. Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. I thought I would do a lecture this afternoon uh, because I have nothing better to do. And I'm really trying to um, get as many of these 30-minute um, episodes in because I'm trying to build up to um, expanding the enterprise of the podcast. And I think the more podcasts I do, the more perhaps people will become informed. This is what I'm trying to do. That is to send out authentic biochemistry and try to get a larger audience. So I'm trying to increase the content. And that's what I'm doing without, of course, diminishing the quality. So we've been talking about this um, reward pathway. And last time on New Year's Eve yesterday, I was talking about some drugs of addiction and how they essentially um, pirate the reward pathway. And we went through some of the specific dopaminergic uh, interactions. And we talked a lot about, again, uh, central nervous system nuclei and their networked associations. So today I thought um, I would recap a little bit of pharmacology and this might be more fun anyways, because it's a little bit lighter topic than getting really deeply into the primary literature. So that's what I'm going to do. So here we go. Again, this is the 1st of January, 2022. So pharmacodynamics, I think uh, we've talked about before, certainly. And I told you that it's a biochemical and a physiological subdiscipline. And it describes the effects of drugs and the mechanisms of drug action and the relationships between the drug concentration and its effect. So pharmacodynamics is what a drug does to the body. So think about it as the targeting. Pharmacokinetics is what the body does to the drug. That has more to do with assimilation and breakdown, right? Okay. So again, the kinetics in Greek, pharmakon means drug, and kinetikos uh, in modern Greek means putting into motion or the action of motion. And of course, it's a branch of pharmacology, and it is primarily dedicated to determination of the fate of the substances administered externally. So the discipline is applied mainly to drugs, pharmaceuticals, sometimes also to vitamins and supplements, of course. And it works with the principle that concerns itself with the manner of the compound ingested, that is its chemistry and formulation, and or otherwise how it's delivered externally to the patient. So we can speak about specific nutrients, uh, especially essential nutrients like essential fatty acids like linoleic and alpha-linolenic acid, uh, various metabolites as well. So for example, coenzyme Q, uh, hormones such as vitamin D, which is taken externally. And you can also even talk in pharmacokinetics about toxins, but typically, uh, pharmacokinetics is divided into the extent and the rate of the following. Absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. And that's the ADME, 
Again, I know we've talked about this in the past, but it's New Year's Day, so we're just going to do this. So absorption for a compound exerts its effect in a tissue. It has to be taken in the bloodstream. Usually that's via mucous surfaces like the digestive tract, right? So this would be intestinal absorption, for example. Uptake into the target organs or cells needs also to occur. This could be a serious problem. So, for example, the blood-brain barrier that we were discussing just last time, yesterday, uh, on our uh, lecture on the reward pathway. So, if the compound's insoluble, if it's unstable, if it falls apart during the digestive process, these are all things to consider in terms of the pharmaceutical or the supplement that is specifically being described for its bioavailability. So drugs that absorb poorly are, when they are taken orally, often have to be administered in some less desirable way, right? This could be IV or intravenously or by inhalation, okay? Those are two more common routes. Now distribution, compound needs to be carried to the effector site, Usually that's via the bloodstream. And of course, from there, the compound can distribute. Again, it has to go through membranes and has to get into cells. And that involves, of course, the mobility in tissues and organs. And that's going to, that's going to occur to differing extent. Then there's metabolism. So we know the compounds can be broken down as soon as they enter the body. Uh, hydrolysis being a common catalytic event. Now, the majority of small molecule drug metabolism actually carried out in the liver by redox enzymes, and typically these are cytochrome P450. And as metabolism is occurring, the parent compound is typically converted to new metabolites. And these are typically pharmacologically inert, but not always, because typically metabolism that first pass of the redox enzymes usually deactivates a drug. Okay. And really the drugs are designed that way so that we can measure and understand the extent of which the drug is bioavailable and therefore potent in its action and activity. Excretion, another important thing, of course. Compound has to leave the body once it's been metabolized. Typically, it's through the kidneys in the form of urine or in the feces. Uh, unless excretion is absolutely complete, any accumulation, particularly if it's a foreign organic compound, can actually downstream adversely affect normal metabolism. Sometimes the potential or real toxicity of the compound is taken into account, and we actually add a T to the ADME. We call it ADMET or ADMET where the T is for toxicity, right? And so, you know, you can understand what I'm saying. Now, the route of administration uh, of a drug influences the ADME. And in pharmacology and toxicology, the route of administration is the path by which the drug is brought into contact with the specific site within the body. The substance has to be transported from the site of entry wherever that happens to be, to the part of the body where its action is desired, even if it only means penetration through, say, the stratum corneum in the skin. However, using the body's transport mechanism for this purpose can be far from trivial. 
So pharmacokinetic properties of a drug, that is those related to its processing of uptake, distribution, elimination are all very critical. When designing a drug and also when recognizing and studying its route of administration. So what are the routes of administration? They're broadly divided into topical, enteral, and parenteral. So those are the three. Topical, usually a local effect, substance supplied directly to where its action is desired. Enteral, desired effect is usually systemic. That means non-local. And the substance is given via, eh, more common than not, the digestive tract. Then there's parenteral. And that's where the desired effect is systemic as well. And the substance is given by other routes than the digestive tract. And that's because digestion would degrade it. Now, the U.S. FDA, Food and Drug Administration, recognizes well over 100 distinct routes of administration. So I'm only going to go through a very abbreviated list, the most common ones. Again, topical, let's break it down. Topical application includes epicutaneous. That means application onto the skin. So sometimes this can be done for association with allergy testing. And also some local anesthesias are added this way. Like hydrocortisone, right? Then there's inhalation. This is common for asthma medications. Then there's enema, not used very often. Contrast media for imaging of the bowel is necessary for that. Then there's eye drops onto the conjunctiva. For example, antibiotics for conjunctivitis. Okay? Or when you have an eye infection, right? That's bacterial in origin. Then you have ear drops. Sometimes those are added as antibiotics. And also, of course, corticosteroids. Uh, and those work for the otitis externa. Then there's intranasal. And those are, you know, the common decongested nasal sprays. And then there's the vaginal. Those can include topical estrogens as well as antibacterials and antifungals. So the enteral by mouth orally means drugs as tablets, capsules, or drops. By gastric feeding tube, duodenal, uh, duodenal, excuse me, feeding tube or gastrostomy, many drugs, and this includes enteral nutrition. You can also sometimes get drugs rectally, and these would be in the form of a suppository or, again, an enema uh, means. Now, parenteral can be by injection or infusion. So you have intravenous, that's into a vein. For example, many drugs are total parenteral. Then there's intraarterial, that means into an artery, of course. And those include things like vasodilators uh, for the treatment of vasospasm or for thrombolytic uh, conditions or for even a treatment of embolism. Those would go into the artery. Then there's intramuscular IM, and many vaccines go this route, as do many antibiotics. And as it turns out in the psychiatry community, long-term psychoactive agents. Then there is the intracardiac, and that includes adrenaline during cardiopulmonary resuscitation. 
Uh, and, and But other than that, not too much intracardiac administration. Then there's the subcutaneous we've already mentioned, and this includes insulin, actually, under the skin. So then there's intraosseous infusion. This is directly into the bone marrow. And in effect, it's an indirect intravenous access because the bone marrow drains directly into the venous system, right? So that route's occasionally used for drugs and fluids and emergency medicine, and also in pediatrics when intravenous access is more difficult. Then there's intradermal, that's into the skin, and that's used for skin testing for some allergens and also for, uh, of course, uh, diseases associated with getting a tattoo, for example. Then there's intrathecal into the spinal canal, most commonly used for spinal anesthesia and indeed for chemotherapy. And then there's intraperitoneal, which includes infusion or injection into the peritoneum. For example, the peritoneal dialysis is predominantly used in vet med and animal testing in general for the administration of systemic drugs and fluids due to the ease of administration as compared with any other of those parenteral methods when you're dealing with animals. Now, in higher vertebrates, the peritoneum, just to give you more detail here, is the serous membrane that forms the lining of the abdominal cavity. And indeed, it covers most of the intra-abdominal region and is composed of a layer of mesothelium supported by a thin layer of connective tissue. The peritoneum is the serous membrane of the abdominal cavity then. The corresponding serous membranes in the pleural and pericardial cavities of the thorax are called the pleura and the pericardium, respectively. And the peritoneum both supports the abdominal organs and serves as a conduit for their blood and lymph vessels and nerves. Now, serous membrane, or pleural serosa, is a smooth membrane consisting of a thin layer of cells which excrete a fluid known as serous fluid. Serous membranes line and enclose several body cavities, and these are known as serous cavities, where they secrete a lubricating fluid which reduces friction from muscle movement. So serosa is not to be confused with adventitia, which is a connective tissue layer, and that binds together structures rather than reducing friction between them. Each serous membrane is composed of a secretory epithelial layer and a connective tissue layer, which is uh, underneath. The epithelial layer, known as the mesothelium, consists of a single layer of avascular flat nucleated cells. Those are the simple squamous epithelium. And those produce the lubricating serous fluid. And that fluid has a consistency similar to thin mucus. Those cells are bound tightly to the underlying connective tissue. The connective tissue itself is a layer that provides the blood vessels and nerves for the overlaying secretory cells and also serves as the uh, kind of a binding layer, which allows the whole serous membrane to adhere to the organ and indeed to other um, associated structures. 
Other parenteral means of administration include transdermal, as diffused through intact skin, such as transdermal opioid patches and pain therapy, and nicotine patches for treatment of nicotine addiction. There's the transmucosal, as the diffusion through a mucous membrane. And for example, that includes insufflation or snorting. For example, uh, drugs of um, non-pharmaceutical association like cocaine. Uh, we also have sublingual nitroglycerin and buccal, which is absorbed through the cheek near the gum line. And then you have inhalational. And these are typically inhalational anesthetics. You have epidural, and the synonym for that is peridural. And that's an injection or infusion into the epidural space. For example, epidural anesthesia. You also have intravitriol, and that's inside the eye. If you ever had any eye surgery, then you may have uh, received such administration. And the spine, the epidermal space is a space outside the tough membrane called the dura mater. Sometimes it's called the dura. And within the spinal canal, which is formed by the surrounding vertebra. Adherent to the inside of the dura is a much thinner and more fragile membrane that's known as the arachnoid matter. Enclosed within the arachnoid is the subarachnoid space, which contains the cerebrospinal fluid and indeed the spinal cord. Humans in the spine, the epidermal space contains the lymphatics, of course, spinal nerve roots, loose fatty tissue, small arteries, and a network of large, rather thin-walled blood vessels. And those are called the epidural venous plexus. So when you think about barriers to drug delivery, first think about the dose, and the dose is going to require some investigation of membrane transport via absorption. And that's going to include a first-pass metabolism, which will then be described as a concentration gradient within the plasma, and that will have a half-life starting from the volume of distribution to its clearance. Then there's another important membrane transport, for example, if it's blood-brain barrier, then you can describe the concentration in the target organ, let's say the hippocampus or something like that. And then ultimately you get the effect. And the effect is going to be all about pharmacodynamics, right? And then you're going to talk about EC50s, Emaxes, the slope of the curve for effectivity. The effect delay is what we discuss here. And then the tolerance development, which can also occur. That's all the effect stage. For example, the pharmacodynamics of clomiphene citrate, the primary site of action, it binds to estrogen receptors in the ovaries. Secondary site of action, it can directly affect the ovaries, and it can also um, be taken up by the hypothalamus. And this is actually where the hypoestrogenic state is recognized in the CNS. And then the pituitary increases the release of the gonadotropins which then regulates estrogen levels. So pharmacokinetics and dynamics include dosage regimen and concentration versus time and serum, 
and that's going to include absorption, distribution, and elimination. It's all pharmacokinetics. Then concentration versus time in tissue and other body fluids, concentration versus time at the site of the infection, and then ultimately pharmacological or toxicological effects and antimicrobial effects versus time. That's all going to be included in the pharmacodynamics, right? All right. So first major question you may ask when you've got a drug is how does it produce its effect? Drugs usually interact in a structurally specific way with a protein receptor. We all know this in authentic biochemistry, and that means it activates typically a secondary messenger, like, for example, adenylate cyclase. That then can produce a biochemical or physiological response for example, a change in intracellular calcium concentrations, which could ultimately lead in the, res in the muscle contraction or indeed a muscle relaxation, okay? Most common receptors are, of course, transmembrane, transmembrane proteins, and they are often linked to guanosine triphosphate binding proteins or GTP proteins, and those activate the secondary messenger systems such as the adenylate cyclase, for example, the beta adrenal receptors or the inositol triphosphate pathway, and those are the alpha adrenal receptors. The drug which binds the receptor produces a maximum response is called a full agonist. A drug that binds and produces less of a maximal response is called a partial agonist. Drugs which bind but don't activate secondary messenger systems are called antagonists. And if indeed a secondary messenger is involved, an antagonist can only produce effects by blocking the access of the natural transmitter, which would be the agonist, in its association with its receptor. So beta blockers produce relatively little change in heart rate when given to subjects at rest, as there is low sympathetic tone and little noradrenaline, which would be the natural agonist. So it can't be antagonized as the at the beta receptor. The effects of beta blockers are therefore measured after stimulating the sympathetic nervous system, usually by exercise. For example, the degree to which exercise induced tachycardia can be blocked. Partial agonists produce an effect if no agonist is present at all, but they but act as antagonists in the presence of a full agonist, such as a natural ligand. So pindolol, which is a beta blocker, is a partial agonist because it produces less decrease in heart rate than a pure antagonist like propranolol, you understand. Selectivity in drug actions related to the structural specificity of the drug binding to its receptor. So again, going back to propranolol, it binds equally well to the beta-1 and beta-2 adrenal receptors whereas atenolol and metoprolol bind selectively to and block, and therefore they are antagonists at the beta-1 adrenoreceptors. Salbutamol is a selective beta-2 adrenoreceptor agonist, and in that particular case, obviously additional selectivity is achieved by inhaling the drug directly to its site of action, which in that case would be the lungs. Okay. So what's another question you can ask? You can say, 
How does a drug effect vary with drug concentration? Another very important question. So the interaction of the drug with the receptor involves it binding to the receptor in the same structurally three-dimensional way that a substrate binds to the active site of an enzyme. Same rate equations, similar kinetic parameters are going to be used here to describe what's known as the concentration effect. And that's the relationship of the drug then to its specific target protein receptor. So the drug concentration effect relationship is described by the same function as what we do in enzyme kinetics, and this would be the enzyme velocity substrate concentration relationship. So in, in that relationship, you get an Emax, where E is the effect of the drug at concentration given C. So Emax is the maximal effect <coughs> at high drug concentrations when basically all the receptors are occupied by the drug. And the EC50 is the drug concentration to give half maximal effect. That's the simplest form of a concentration effects relationship. And there are many more complex expressions, mathematical expressions, that is, that are required to explain all the observed effects of a given drug. All right. So... <clears throat> Decrease in effect of a drug is when approximately <clears throat> becomes linear with time. And this is usually between 80% and 20% of its maximal effect. So if the dose has been such that the initial concentration was, say, 4 milligrams per liter, giving about 80% max effect, the decrease in effect would have been linear with time from immediately after that dose. <clears throat> so then you can also discuss therapeutic range. And how do you define that? So an alternative way of constructing a concentration effect curve is to determine the percentage of a population of patients showing a defined response at various drug concentrations. For example, with the drug phenytoin, the therapeutic response might be defined as greater than an 80% decrease in the frequency of its adverse effect as defined as the proportion of patients developing nystagmus, or that means looking sideways after taking the drug. Now, these are called quantile population dynamics because you have quantile concentration response curves and they have the same shape and parameter as a graded concentration response curve that uh, we have discussed in the past. So a quantal concentration response curve is constructed by determining the cumulative percentage of a patient population with a discrete therapeutic or, on the other side of it, adverse effect. And such curves are used for things like vaccines and also anticonvulsants, among other drugs. So case in point, think about monoamine oxidase inhibitors. These are antidepressant drugs, and they tend to be, they were classically described for depre major depressive disorder. They're particularly effective in treating atypical depression, 
but they also have efficacy in helping smokers to quit smoking, actually. So there are two isoforms of the mono, and that's, of course, going to be an addiction thing because of nicotine. There are two isoforms of monoamine oxidase, the AMOAs and the AMAOBs. The A-type preferentially deaminate the following, serotonin, melatonin, adrenaline, and noradrenaline. Dopamine is equally deaminated by both types. And many MAOI formulations use forms of fluoride attached to assist in getting past the blood-brain barrier. And that's suspected as a factor in the pineal gland effects that you sometimes see from that kind of administration. Now, drug concentration is not always an indicator of the response because you get delayed distribution. That's when the site of the drug action is at a site to which the drug is slowly distributed. The effect increases as the drug concentration already is starting to fall due to its redistribution. So drug concentration soon after a dose causes a smaller effect, then the same concentration will then induce later when the distribution of the site of action has been equally administered. So sometimes you get varying effects like that. You also get acute tolerance. Now that's got a name, it's called tachyphylaxis. And acute tolerance can develop when a drug concentration isn't a very good indicator of its response. We're gonna stop here. I think that was enough for today. Uh, This is Dr. Dan Guerra on New Year's Day uh, from Authentic Biochemistry. Hope you enjoyed that little bit of pharmacology. Bye for now.